I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to step outside of our <coughs> series that we've been going over the last several months in 1 Samuel. We'll pick this back up next week. But we're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 2 because it is a great Christmas passage. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Every Christmas we are confronted with the sometimes difficult task of separating the reality of Christmas from that which would distract us. And our family yearly drives or walks through some of the North Turlock neighborhoods to see Christmas lights. Most of you know probably where that is. It's over there off of Olive, almost to Monta Vista. And one street in particular is, is known for its dedication to fancy light and lawn decorations. That's the one we go on. And we park there in the church on the other side of the street. And we have our hot chocolate in the car, hot cider prepared. And, and we gather with our children and their children. And hundreds of people are are seen walking, you know, the, the path one side of the street and circle back on the other side of the street or slowly driving down. Now, the last several years, there have been people that have been peddling candy, even some horse-drawn carts prior to COVID, of course, uh, with carolers singing. Maybe we'll see them again uh, in the years to come. But these Christmas displays, they're often many theological statements, aren't they? of what people think about Christmas. Our favorites, of course, are the ones that clearly tell about the Messiah, where we get a chance to see Jesus and, and Mary and Joseph there with the shepherds and angels. And we see some of those scenes, uh, but they're becoming rarer, I think. And far more common are the ones like Snoopy skating with Santa. Or there's one home that, that actually puts it all together. It's always the same. They have a nativity scene in one corner. They have the star of David, Frosty the snowman, Santa Claus the Grinch, Christmas trees, presents, plastic toys on the lawn. The entire house uh, front area is covered with something. And I think that's a graphic picture of the chaos of Christmas for most people. All confused so that no one can make sense of any of it. There is a danger every year that Christmas will become this hopeless muddle of confusion. As one author writes, the humility and poverty of the stable blended with the wealth and indulgence of extravagant gift giving. Right? That's the danger for us. It's the quiet, he says, of Bethlehem mingled with the whir of shopping centers and freeway traffic. Blinking colored lights take over for the star of Bethlehem. The stable, so obscure and dirty, is absorbed by a warm house and opulent feasting and plastic toys taking a hundred batteries replace the gifts given by wise men. And I would add that salesmen replace the shepherds and reindeer replace angels and parties replace the pain of childbirth and somewhere Bing Crosby and Amy Grant and Pentatonix and a host of others join with Mary and Joseph and the innkeeper. And many of those things, they're not bad in and of themselves. And I'm not trying to, to rain on our Christmas celebration. I'm going to be the first to admit we start Christmas music on November 1st, probably earlier than most people. But for this morning, I do want to rein in, if you will, our celebration. I want us to take a step back from 
sometimes the chaos and confusion and see the Christmas story as it was revealed through the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 2. You won't find Bethlehem here. You won't find shepherds or wise men or mangers or, or any of the animals. You won't even see Joseph or Mary, but you will exceptionally clearly see the incarnation. Would you stand as we read God's holy and inspired word? Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word. Thank you for the, these glimpses that we get at various passages like Philippians 2 and 2 the reality of the incarnation, what it meant for you, what it means for us. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas, for Jesus Christ, the incarnation, our salvation. And we pray that you would help us to be attentive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, keep your Bibles open to this passage because I want to break down this verse at a time, even though we'll be looking at some other passages in scripture as we go. But first, according to verse 6, we read that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And there is a tiny three-word verb in that sentence, and it's the word was. It's so inconspicuous, you would overlook it and focus on words like form and equality. But think about what the word was means. It's a form of the verb to be. When we say that something is something, we are often speaking of essence and nature, its very identity. I am a man, that's what my DNA says. I am a father, I have six children to prove it. I am a human being as opposed to being a dog or horse. Well, what does the Bible say about who Jesus was. John 1 says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1, he has spoken in these last days by his Son who is the brightness of his glory. 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. What is that mystery that God was manifest in the flesh. The substance of our faith is that Jesus Christ is God, manifest in the flesh. Not just that he acted like God, not just that he revealed God, or that he seemed like God. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am... 
And he uses this phrase, I am, because that was the name of God that indicated God's eternal nature. He is always I am. He is never I will be or I was. And thus many people at the time who heard Jesus equate himself with God sought to stone him. So Jesus was, as Paul says, in the form of God. I'm not always sure that the word form is incredibly helpful in English. It translates the Greek word morphe, which means, again, essence of something. Think about how you would describe your morphe to someone. What would you say? You might focus on the physical and say, I am skin and muscle. Some of us would add fat and bone. You might focus on the spiritual and say, I am a spiritual being created by God. Well, in Romans 8.29, Paul says that those whom God foreknew, them he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And the word translated image is the Greek word morphe. And so what Paul is saying is that God didn't just he didn't just predestine you to imitate or copy Christ's behavior on the outside. But he predestined you to be transformed with a new nature and a new heart so that your external behavior is a reflection of a real interchange. And it's important to distinguish morphe from a different Greek word, schema. Schema means appearance. It's what something looks like on the outside. I mentioned this word schema a year ago when we were looking at Hebrews. It, schema can change with circumstances, such as a person at one time looking energetic and at the next looking weary, or it can be a contrast between the way something seems or appears with what really is. For example, we, we do often contrast appearance with reality. Well, a great example of that contrast is found in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul says, Satan fashions himself as an angel of light. So his inner nature doesn't reflect what he tries to fashion himself on the outside as an appearance. Or consider a verse where two different, those two different words, morphe and, and schema, appear in the same verse in Romans 12 too. Stop being fashioned. Stop appearing according to the world. But be transformed, a form of the verb morphe, become in your essence, in your inner man, through the renewing of your mind. So we need to stop appearing like the world when we are in reality born of God. Why is all of that important? Because Paul chooses his words carefully. Paul's always careful. So are all the biblical authors. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so when he describes Jesus in verse 6 as the morphe of God, not the schema of God, he is saying that he is in essence, and this goes to the heart of our belief in the deity of Christ, in essence, God. But then Paul goes on to say he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word equality is referring to what we just read. So Jesus is 
as the Son of God, choosing not to grasp onto or hold onto his morphe. What does that mean? Does it mean that he ceased to be God, that he emptied himself of his essence? No, but part of the essence or form or morphe of being God is the possession and exercise of the attributes of God and the possession of certain rights of being God. It is what makes God, God. And when we read the next verses, we see exactly what Paul is meaning. He's saying that Jesus emptied himself and became a servant. You see, one of God's attributes is majesty. He is sovereign over all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the most majestic thing, being, creature in all things. And thus one of his privileges is the right to rule. But the son did not hold tightly to that right, but rather willingly became man. And as a man, he himself, think about all that that implied. As opposed to the, the right of majest, majestic rule, he becomes man, and as man submits himself to the father. He empties himself quite literally as an offering upon the cross. Notice, for example, how down in verse 17, Paul says that he imitates, he himself, the apostle, imitates Christ by pouring himself out as a drink offering, just as Christ emptied himself. And then contrast that with the opposite attitude of, of grasping, holding, trying to, to achieve equality with God as displayed, for example, with Satan in Isaiah 14 who says, I will ascend into heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly on the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So here we have Satan grasping at equality with God. But he never possessed it in the first place. Jesus did not try to hold on to that equality. Why? Well, first, he was already equal to God, so there was nothing he needed to add or gain. But second, and more importantly, he did not hold on to these rights, fearing that he would lose something. He would never cease being God. We might even say that Jesus was never more expressing, I would say this, he was never more expressing his essence than when he was willing to let go of the exercise of his rights for a time. Was the right to rule the only thing that Jesus gave up for a time? And I say for a time because we're told that after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the Father gave all authority and dominion into his hands, right? Was that the only right he gave up? No, the Bible says some other rights that Jesus did not grasp onto. For example, we learn John 17, 5, this, and now, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's saying that during this time of the incarnation that he gave up the glory that he once possessed. And glory is that weightiness of, of honor that's given to another. And becoming a sin offering, Jesus took on the dishonor of sinful humanity. He was hung upon a tree 
as a criminal outside of the city. So he gave up a right to rule, to be obeyed and worshipped, but it was much more than that, wasn't it? He allowed himself to be despised, rejected, hated, mocked, spit upon, discredited, accused, even murdered. The prophet Isaiah says that in Jesus' outward schema, that's how the Septuagint translates that in Isaiah, in his outward appearance there was no beauty in him that men should desire him. What else did Jesus not hold on to? Well, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. So Jesus gives up his riches. He gives up for a moment in time the favor of the Father and in a way that I don't fully understand when the Son took upon himself our sin and as a result the wrath And the judgment of the Father against sin, the Son was abandoned. That's why Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was this anticipation of being forsaken that causes him to sweat tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the only thing, actually, that gives Satan's temptation, the wilderness, any substance, any hope of tempting Christ. It is this great anxiety of the approaching crucifixion. And so the son lays aside his divine right to rule and instead becomes a servant. He lays aside his glory and honor, his riches. And on the cross he lays aside his favorable relationship to the father. And at this point I want to remind you of an important point. Even though the son willingly did not exercise these rights, he still continued to be God and maintained his attributes. He simply chose not to exercise them. That's what it means when it says, chose not to grasp onto that equality. As he told Peter at Gethsemane, right? If I wanted to, I could summon a legion of angels if I chose to. He said the same thing to Pilate. You have no authority of me except that which I allow you to have. That is is the posture of Christ that he did not lose those attributes, but he gave up the exercise of those rights. He had all the privileges of glory and had no obligation to us, and yet it says so much about his character that he chose to use and at times not use those privileges to build the Father's kingdom and save us. Verse 7 says, he took upon himself the form of a servant. This is the heart of what it meant to empty himself. I already mentioned Jesus becoming a servant earlier, but I want to explore that a little bit more. If you were to imagine the kind of human being that God would become, God incarnate, wouldn't you envision Someone larger than life. Many people would envision some superhuman type figure. All you have to do is look at the past, the mythologies of man, and see the god-men, right, of Olympus. At least you probably think of a great leader or a famous teacher, but the king of the universe 
the creator of all things, becomes a child in a manger in a small town, born to poor young parents, grows up to be a servant. And I want you to realize that he didn't just act like a servant, because based upon what I told you earlier in the Greek, if that were the case, we would read what? He took on the schema, or the appearance of a servant. He acted like a servant. He seemed like a servant. No, that's not what the Greek says. It is the word morphe. He took on the essence of a servant. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty seven, I am in the midst of you as one who serves. And he said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man has come not to be served. That would be the right of majesty, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. So the ultimate act of service. Some people think, well, wasn't it in the upper room when Jesus washes the apostles, you know, the disciples' feet? No. The ultimate act of service is dying upon a cross to save sinners. And in his perfection, the Son of God is willing to be a servant, and that service means he had to approach a sinful people. He could not do it from the top of a mountain like Mount Olympus. Notice John 1 says he tabernacled amongst his people. He became, he tented among his people. If you look once more at verse 7 there, being born in the likeness of men. Now the word of likeness there is, isn't the word schema, but it isn't the word morphe either. Instead, it, the first part of the word is the Greek prefix homoi, which means similar. We might say that Jesus came in the sameness of men, which is to say that he was a genuine man. He had everything that men have except for one thing. And what was that? A sin nature. Adam was created a man without sin, and you and I will one day exist in eternity as men and women without sin. So to be a man or a woman is not to say that sin is a part of being human. That's what the Greeks used to say. Right? To err is human, but Christ did not sin. For the Bible says he was without sin. In fact, Jesus was all that a man was supposed to be. Was as man was once created, as man will become, but not as man is. So there was a, there was a similarity, but not a totality, and we look at verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And being found means to learn something or discover something by personal experience. So part of this likeness or similarity and sameness to man is he was born of human parents. He lived in the village of Nazareth. He ate fish. He worked with wood. He spoke Aramaic. He walked from one place to another. He wore the clothing of a Jewish man. He experienced everything physically and emotionally and mentally that a human being does. He was even tempted, and yet without sin. The Christmas carol away in the manger talks about, that I played earlier as the offering, talks about the, the baby awaking, but no crying he makes. Well, as if Jesus is uh, not allowed to cry. 
right? But all babies cry. Crying isn't a sign of sin, and yet there's something raw and earthy, isn't there, about the, the thought of Jesus as a baby crying. But he was a man. Have you ever truly thought about all the implications of verse 8? Found in the form of man and humbled himself. And you look in, you, in, your, in your imagination, you see Jesus there as a little boy. Or as a young man helping Joseph make a yoke in a carpenter shop. That yoke's going to go on oxen that he created. Washing the feet of the 12 disciples, like I mentioned earlier. But he designed their brains. I like what St. Augustine once said. He said, the word of the Father by whom all time was created, was made flesh, was born in time for us. He without whose divine permission no day completes its course wished to have one of those days for his human birth. There's more of the quote, but I just want to stop there and think about that for a second. Not a single day goes by that without his divine permission and completing its course, and yet he chooses one of those days for his human birth. In the bosom of his father he existed, Augustine says, before all the cycles of the ages, born of an earthly mother, though he entered on the course of the years on that day of his choice, the maker of man became man that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied in the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust, that he disciplined personified might be scourged with a whip, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross. That's one of my favorite parts there. The foundation of all things might be lifted up and suspended on a cross. That he, courage incarnate, might be weak. And he, security itself, might be wounded he life itself might die. And friends, Jesus humbled himself unto death, and he didn't just die either. As we look at verse 8, even death, Paul adds, on a cross. It's one thing to die. It's much worse to die the death of the cross. I won't go into all the details here. Sometimes do that around Easter time, but the pain is excruciating and unimaginable. Suffice it to say, you do not want to die the death of the cross. It was a lonely death. For even the Father turned his face. And so what is the true Christmas story separated from all of the clutter and the distraction and the, the chaos and the confusion that the world tempts us with? The true story is that the Son of God laid aside his sovereign prerogative, accepted a servant's place, approached a sinful people, took on a humble posture, dishonor, giving up his riches, the favorable relationship of the Father, emptying himself to the point of death upon 
a cross. And we think of presents wrapped in brightly colored paper, but the reality of Christmas is that the greatest gift of all is that Jesus emptied himself by becoming a servant. And why would he do this? In God, there is no hunger that must be filled. There is no need that must be met. God, who needs nothing, loved into existence, holy, superfluous creatures in order that he might love and perfect them. He created the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. His flayed back against that rough wood. Nails through wrists and ankles, the torture of breath. C.S. Lewis says that God is the host who deliberately created his own parasites. He created us knowing that we would exploit and take advantage of them. And hold that for a moment and then look again at the final verses of our passage today. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we want to purchase something, we pay a price. Why did God do all of this? Because he desired to redeem a people who would be his bride for all eternity. And so we and those who have come before us, those who will be after us, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we are the bride that Jesus purchased. An eternity of people who will praise and honor the Lamb. And God loved that. He loved what we would become. The perfected, glorified bride without blemish, and it was his great sacrifice that he died for us when we were not yet that when we were dead in our sins. And so Christmas is about humility. It's about love. Paul challenges the church to have that same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. That's my personal challenge to you today as well, because if you look at the first verses of Philippians 2 up there, there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love or participation in the Spirit, and hopefully as you're reading those words, you're saying, I'm one of those. I want to participate in the Spirit. I want to be encouraged in Christ. I want to be comforted by love. I want to be known as a person of affection and sympathy. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do you see how in the verses that come that we went over today, do you see the context, the, the, the meaning of what Paul is saying when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Is that what Christ did? That's absolutely what Christ did. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As you celebrate this Saturday, remember this true story of Christmas. Think about what the Son gave up. Think about what he purchased for you. Remember why he did this. And then as busyness threatens to overwhelm you, as, you, as everything's propelling to all the family, they're almost here, we can't get the things out of the oven, it's not ready, the house is not clean enough, or have we got all the, the presents wrapped? As all of that threatens to overcome you. And as you fight the temptation to assert and defend yourself, as you find the conflict beginning to roll up and the irritation start, remember the admonition to have the same mind as Christ, that he gave up everything for you. Strive to have that same love and unity of mind. In fact, what a shame, wouldn't it be, if the very opposite of what you're celebrating at Christmas is reflected in your own mind and heart this day. Wouldn't it be great if as the conflict started to develop this week that you paused for a moment and remembered what Jesus did and that motivated you to have the same lowliness of mind? Let us outdo one another in good works and count others as more significant than ourselves. I want to end with a statement that I often read at Christmas time every few years. It's by B.B. Warfield. I just think it's a, it's a great closing quotation. So let me read it to you. We see him among the thousands of Galilee, anointed of God with the Holy Spirit and power, going about doing good with no pride of birth. Although he was a king, with no pride of intellect. Although omniscience dwelt within him with no pride of power. Although all power in heaven and earth was in his hand, no pride of station. Though the fullness of the God had dwelt in him bodily, no pride of superior goodness, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming everyone better than himself. He healed the sick. He cast out the devils. He fed the hungry. And everywhere he broke to men the bread of life, though he himself went without. We see him everywhere offering to men his life for salvation of their souls. And when at last the forces of evil gathered thick around him without display and without dismay, he walked the path of suffering appointed for him and gave his life at Calvary that through his death the world might live. That is Christmas. May we all have that attitude this year. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace and goodness of your perfect will. I thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us with the opportunity to celebrate the birth of your Son that he lived for us with a single-minded purpose to empty himself, to be obedient, 
to you in order to redeem us and to bring you glory. What an amazing truth and wonder that is. Father, I just ask that as we prepare this weekend for Christmas that you would help us to to have that attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to slow down enough that we don't feel like that house that has a thousand things going on at one time. But Lord, with a single-minded hope that we would bless others with the gospel through our attitudes. It's in Jesus' name we pray, thanking you for him.